Welcome to the Vegas Game Podcast for November 25th, 2008. I would like to welcome back my regular panel, uh, David McKee from the Las Vegas Advisor. Hey, David. Hello. Uh, Dave Schwartz from UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Good afternoon, Dave. Good afternoon. Uh, Jeff Simpson from the Las Vegas Sun and In Business Las Vegas. Welcome, Jeff. Greetings, guys. Uh, Chuck Monster of VegasTrucking.com is not with us today. Today is a special episode that we're going to be going over some of the uh, output from the recently concluded G2E uh, conference in Las Vegas, the annual gaming conference. Uh, my name is Hunter Hilligus, and I run RateVegas.com. So, um, like I said, it's a short special episode, and we're basically just going to focus on this one topic, which is G2E. And uh, I believe all three of you guys attended, and I just wanted to get some impressions, most interested in things that you saw that that looked interesting, anything that, um, you know, maybe the sign of an emerging trend in the next year and years to come. And, and for those that don't know, G2E is an annual conference held in Las Vegas. It covers all sorts of stuff. Traditionally, I think, you know, they've got a show floor that focuses a lot on technology from the industry, such as slot machines and, uh, you know, bill acceptors and all that kind of stuff, the mechanical stuff that you need to offer a casino floor. Plus, they've added a food and beverage area for those folks and a casino design segment, um, basically trying to cater to all the different departments that need some educational and ability to market and sort of network. Um, so I'm just going to open it up, and whoever wants to go first um, can uh, can give us give us some of their thoughts. Anybody I can jump tell, tell you what the trend's going to be, and that's fewer employees in in the casino, whether it's dealers or beverage servers or whatever you want to name. Because what I kept hearing was that the casinos want you know what they want from the suppliers are things that allow them to to economize, to quote-unquote operate more efficiently, i.e. with fewer employees, um, increased demand for you know, for those uh, table games where you're playing against uh, a digital dealer, um, more products along those those lines. So, so definitely uh, the trend, it was, it was pretty clear the trend is towards a, a less, uh, you know, towards at least attempting to deliver the same the same general level of service but with fewer bodies yeah i really saw that too and even some of the things that are touted as real innovations i think are just sort of labor saving um and that you know that's really been the trend for the past 30 years but i'll give you an example there was a company called las vegas gaming inc that had a little thing little box that went on the slot machine mm-hmm. that lets you do all kinds of stuff through the box and through the computer network, not through talking to people. So, for example, you can place a drink order. So instead of turning on, hitting the, you know, cocktail waitress light on the overhead candle, you send your drink order to the bartender who then dispatches a cocktail waitress, which I was thinking, wow, that's cool. People will get their drinks a lot quicker. But then I thought, wait a second. This means that the waitresses don't have to walk back from the player, give the drink order, then walk back out. So ultimately, it probably means that they'll lose somewhere around half the cocktail waitresses since we'll have to do half as little work. You know, I don't think it will mean ultimately the players will get that much better service. I think they'll still have wait times. So, you know, that was just one example of that that I could find. I think that um, you guys are, are, are right. I think the cost savings um, are 
are something that, you know, from from uh, top of the ladder to uh, bottom of the pecking order, companies are looking for cost savings, not just uh, not just in terms of, I mean, certainly cutting human, um, cutting employee costs and operation and operations. Um, you know, that's sort of the low hanging fruit of cost cutting. Um, casinos are used to that on a seasonal basis. Um, in Nevada, it's always been this Thanksgiving to Christmas time of year, maybe midweek in the summer. Um, but um, so those things have already been done. Um, then they go to some uh, tougher, tougher cuts, uh, cutting executives, cutting uh, cutting mid-level managers um, as uh, development plans are canceled. They um, they will cut um, additional. Additional employees and reduce service levels. Um, they'll take uh, hotel floors and wings out of operation. Um, and uh, so, you know, those kind of things get done. Then they start cutting quality, whether it's on, you know, in-room toiletries, qualities of food that they're purchasing. Um, they will certainly reduce hours for outlets. Um, and you see, uh, you see that across the board. So certainly at G2E, there was an emphasis on these kind of um, labor-saving devices. Um, there are a lot of those uh, sort of on the floor this year, um, and I didn't get to spend a lot of time there, but um, a lot of those uh, sort of table game slots um, would sort of kill two birds with one stone. There are plenty of markets that don't allow various table games, whether it's tribal casinos in California that can't offer um, dice or uh, roulette, um, or and the same thing is true in uh, in in some casinos um, in Florida. I think they're allowed to have card games, but still no dice. Um, and you know, Pennsylvania is a slot-only state. So for for states like that, um, these slot versions of craps and um, roulette, and then um, even blackjack for Pennsylvania. Those games have long been around, but manufacturers are making them, you know, better and more user-friendly um, and more closely rep- replicating um, the actual table game experience. So it looks like a slot, it plays like a slot, but for the player, I mean, and it counts as a slot according to regulators, but for the player, you can bet on it like you would at a table game. It's just that there's no actual person throwing dice or whatever. And uh, so it kills that it kills that bird, but simultaneously, you don't have to hire a box man and, and, and a crew of four dealers to work at a dice table. You just plug the thing in. Um, the same thing at a roulette table. You don't need two dealers and a, and a supervisor. Um, it's it's uh, you know cost efficient and um, fulfills that regulatory need. So I think that's sort of cool, um, you know. And I but I think yeah, economics, um, efficiency are were a couple of the watchwords this year. Um, and another another thing that you might want to that it you know a lot of the things on display that aren't like that, where they're pitching new technology or they're saying, oh, server-based gaming. It's really like taking a bunch of people who just got their credit cards canceled and sending them into the mall. Um, you, you have all these casino companies that are looking for ways to cut costs, and they're wandering among all these options that, you know, maybe they can generate a little more money at the top line, but that's that's not what they're interested in. They're interested in digging themselves out of a out of a hole. 
And so it was it was really sort of a, a strange year this year. Um, and, um, you know, a, certainly a first for me. Um, this is the first time I've been to a G, the G2E right after 9-11. I think people felt like that was an aberration that would quick that would be followed by a quick rebound. And it was. Um, but, you know, since then, all the nine, all the uh, G2Es have been exceptionally optimistic with people pitching, you know, wholesale technology improvements. Um, and like Dave wrote, David uh, McKee wrote in his blog, the the mythical uh, the mythical server based gaming rollout. Um, you, you know, you still see some of that, but it's uh, questionable whether anybody's actually buying it. Yeah. yeah, I mean now now I'm assured that they're you know that it will that they're only six months away from deployment, you know, <laughs> April of '09, but it, but it's gotten to the you know the the uh, so much of the excitement has been rubbed off, and you know there's the the hype has been, I mean in addition to what to what Jeff said, which was you know they find you know when they finally get it to market, nobody can afford it, and also it's been hyped for so long and it's being rolled out in such an underwhelming fashion on top of that. Well, I think, David, I think I, I think you wrote something along the lines of they need to do a better job of explaining why the customers would care about about the tech, that specific technology. And that's absolutely right. I mean, from a customer's perspective, who cares? I mean, yeah, I guess they can push a button and switch the game to something that they might want to play more than what happens to be sitting there. But for these people to make a large capital investment, you know, having the customers be excited about it would certainly help. Well, and Dave, Dave hit on the nub of it. They're saying, well, you know, you can do these, you know, the, these. Uh, um, you can order. This will give you the ability to order drinks from your your slot machine. Well, they can already retrofit existing slot machines to do that, or you can, um, you know, you can receive offers. You know, instead of having to wait till you go home, you'll receive them right at your your slot machine. And and I believe there's there's some functionality that permits that already. Um, there wasn't, you know, it, uh, I mean, it to some, you know, if you press a little bit more, then they start to talk about how you they can do these kinds of communal play things with the slot machines, and I got a demo of of how that could be done with with a, you know, like a bank of Star Wars slots. Uh, but it's, you know, they're not, you know, it's like you ask them, okay, what's in this for the player? Because if the players don't demand it, the operators have very little incentive to install it right now, and they, you know, they 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 have a hard time articulating what the value message for the player is, and as a result, I, as you know, as somebody who who dates an avid slot player, have a hard time grasping what's going to make her want to play these machines. I mean. The, the the machine she liked very the most was a it wasn't any you know fancy you know it wasn't any server based thing it was a it was a Lily Tomlin slot machine made by a relatively obscure manufacturer, um, but it had a lot of interactivity. I mean that's what you know that was what got her excited was the amount of you know was it was an entertainment experience. So saying, well, you know, there's going to be more convenience in terms of getting coupon offers and ordering drinks from your slot stool, that's that's not going to move the needle from, you know, from what I've been able to to see. And that could be just a peripheral purchase. 
um, from a company that you mentioned, like Las Vegas Gaming. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to buy. I mean, that whole system. It real all it really does, from my perspective, it certainly gives more flexibility to the operator, um, and it allows them to reconfigure their floor much more quickly, based on the kind of customers they have on the, on their floor. Um, I don't know how many how many casinos really need that kind of wide ranging flexibility. Like, you know, it's not like they go from a floor full of, you know, um, you know, uh, poor people to Warren Buffett's in the course of a day. Um, but you know, when you think back to the, to the big technological trends of the last, you know, 15 years, 20 years or so on the slot floor, um, bill validators, uh, multi-game, multi-denomination video poker, video kino machines, and then ticket in, ticket out. Those kind of things had, um, particularly bill validators, ticket in, ticket out, dramatic convenience improvements for customers. Mm-hmm. Um, bill validators, you know, don't have to don't have to dump coins in, um, and and ticket in, ticket out. Don't have to wait for refills, which is a big inconvenience. Don't have to handle coins at all on the front or the back end. Um, and then, um, and and then the multi-game, multi-denomination thing. Um, that's sort of the one thing that this will add is on the slot side, on the real side, video or traditional. It'll give people the access to different games. So. How much is that worth? I mean, are people, you know, I, I never, I rarely hear complaints from players about the inability to find certain games except for the very hottest games. So maybe that, maybe there will be some, you know, marginal um, advantage, but I'm not sure that for the casino, it's something that's worth retrofitting. It may be that only the new properties, city center when it opens, um, or whatever, you know, whatever follows that will be properties that will say, let's open with um, server-based gaming. But it's hard for me to imagine, you know, every property on the Strip um, going back and retrofitting with server-based gaming like the way they did with these other significant technological breakthroughs, valves, oh. ticket in, ticket out. Oh, no. I mean, they were all the talk was about how, you know, okay, now it's going to be brought out incrementally, you know, a bank or, or two at a time. Right, Look, right, exactly. Exactly. They aren't going to do that. It's not going to have the impact that these other ones had, at least not in a in a relatively brief period of time. I mean, it only took three or four years for the entire strip, absent maybe the new frontier and, you know, a few uh, oddball machines at the Riviera and elsewhere to be ticket in, ticket out. That was an amazingly fast transformation. The locals market even quicker, except for some dumpy properties that, you know, didn't have capital um, because customers demanded it. Um, I just, I agree. I think the lack of customer demand for this is going to be a real significant hit on companies like IGT that have sort of thought of server-based gaming as a way to to um, sort of um, dramatically increase purchases of of new games. I think that, you know, that obviously the, the replacement cycle is getting much slower, not faster. 
Like and it also means a lot of kind of dull-looking product because the boxes have to – a lot of the, you know, a lot of the in idiosyncrasies that set certain games apart will have to be – you know, you can't have those. I mean, no, nothing looks like a Wheel of Fortune machine. You know, you could not mistake it for something else. But these have to be – there has to be so much interchangeability of the game content that you really are going to have it to, to see a more, uh, you know, more monotonous-looking slot. Absolutely. Yes, that's right. Oh, and I should add quickly, it's Multimedia Games, which is the maker of the the Ernestine slot. <laughs> In the past years, life game licensing and uh, the licensing of trademarks for games has always been a, a very a very hot area. Was that the was that trend continue this year? Did we see that again? Or any big any big licensees that are going to have new games coming out, or is that sort of gone by the wayside? A little bit of that, Aristocrat, who traditionally didn't do licensing, has licensed Jaws, and they were very big about that and were, were pretty big. And as a matter of fact, I couldn't get to demo it because even with a sales guy, I couldn't get on a machine because they were so crowded. So wow. They know what they're doing. <laughs> well, that sounds like a positive one. But in general, I mean, would you say that it's less less of that this year? Definitely. Yeah, I think the trend has been dropping in that area for a couple of years. Certainly there are, you know, and companies will buy those, you know, the new intellectual property, the new, you know, TV shows or whatever. But you see, I, I would say that probably peaked in 2004, 2005, and has, uh, you know, sort of dropped slowly since then. Yeah, Atronic had a Stargate SG-1 game. Uh, the, the the spinning reel version is dull as dust. The, the slant top is better, but compared, say, to the IGT Star Wars game, when you get to the interactivity, you know, and the, the bonusing rounds and just the, the use of the uh, the mythology of, of the source material itself, not very imaginative at all. I think one one sort of cool thing is the way um, the way manufacturers are sort of designing their bonus rounds, um, their bonus play. Um, some of them, you know, are sort of you know in the Wheel of Fortune style, very regular, predictable. You know, one out of every twenty, thirty, or forty plays, you're going to get a bonus spin or do something a little more exciting. But others, um, and, and others are even more frequent than that, um, but there are some that are exceptionally, you know, tight, um, that make that bonus round, um, you know, chaseable for something, you know, it has a significant payoff when you get it, but you might have to play through a substantial amount of money to get to it. And you see uh, different titles sort of differentiating themselves in how uh, how hard to get those bonus rounds are, and uh, you know I think that that's one thing that you know different types of players like different types of chases. Um, so and I think that that's something that's sort of easy to see. Although I will confess that at G2E, uh, most of those games, um, when they're demonstrating them to the media, you're on the bonus round immediately. So, uh, you know, it's, it, the game always looks amazingly exciting, uh, much less exciting than, or much more exciting than when you're on the floor and you're watching your own money, uh, you know, dwindle as you don't get bonus rounds. Well, considering the number of the uh, the number of games one has to look at at G2E, I'm always glad if they're set 
to the bonus round because I don't want to have to keep punching buttons waiting for that. Oh, of course, <laughs> of course. And I want to say one of the pleasant surprises was I always wondered, you know, with server-based, okay, you know, you know, you st- what? How do you get around the, the, you know, the issue of the physical, real spinning slot machines? But I did see some digital 3D. Uh, equivalents that uh, that were surprisingly well, I mean, surprisingly effective, and and I think that you know that that you know the, I had expected there might be some customer resistance to getting away from the the physical reels, but now I'm I've changed my mind. Well, that's interesting. That's a question I've always asked: is you know the machines that have a lot of uh, associate the actual you know the actual unit plays a big role in in how the game is designed you know with a generic server based console obviously not as many options to design a custom casing and all that sort of thing to support the game so that's interesting to to see virtualized reels which i guess is the logical next step for that sort of thing mm-hmm. yeah i've got a couple of thoughts too if I, Go ahead. if I can share them. Uh, as I was walking around, I was trying to figure out what were the most, what were the ideas that could be transformative for the players. You know, as we were talking about before, the whole, you know, more efficient labor-saving kick is huge. And I'm not trying to make myself out as some kind of Luddite who's against things being more efficient. I think that's fine. I just think it's not very exciting and it's not that much to brag about. What I was looking for was something that you could tell a player, this will change the way you play, the change the way you go into a casino. And I have three candidates. I'm going to break them down here. The first one was Surface, which I got, I had demoed by a guy who said they'd written this program in three weeks. And it kind of surprised me because Harris and Microsoft have been talking about this for like what two years now, or so. Yeah, at least at least eighteen months. I mean, I remember yeah, I did a business right. article about it like God two years ago. Right. So it amazed me that they had to write this in three weeks for the expo. But basically, what it was is you could put your player card on the surface, and it would tell you what kind of offers you can get and stuff like that. And it was okay, but it was pretty much just the same as. You could just do stuff that you could do anyway by talking to people. So it didn't seem to me that this really changed anything. And you could have done the same thing by just putting, you know, having kiosks dedicated to the website in there. You know, it didn't seem like this was any really unique new use of technology. So that one was kind of blah. And I was asking about gaming applications, and I just got a totally blank stare back. So, you know, I was thinking maybe they could be doing something with sports betting or you know, other kinds of things and kind of parlaying a sports bet with, I don't know, a table game in some way, but nobody is thinking that way. Other thing I thought was neat was a community gaming where you're kind of tied into the same game as other people and you're competing, you're working with each other and then you're going against each other. But probably the one that impressed me most was the Star Trek game for two reasons. Um, First of all, they had this kind of Dolby surround sound thing where you had speakers behind the chair that made it a lot more immersive and it was almost because I had the volume cranked up all the way I was almost too immersive where it was like <laughs> wow too much noise um, of course a lot of it's you know using the content from the original Star Trek which is cool but the thing that I thought was really neat was the fact that you could pretty much save your progress on the game you had to download these or you had to win these medals or something. I forget what it was. I think it was these these medals that every now and then they would show up in the bonus rounds. 
And when you got to, I think, 20 medals, you would unlock one episode, then another 20, you would unlock another one. And basically what this meant is that somebody could keep on coming back. And I wasn't sure whether it was the same property or whether it was every property in the jurisdiction, but somebody could keep on coming back and progressing towards this goal, which really I thought was a great way of marketing a game towards a video game generation who are used right. to the massively multiplayer online games and used to having this kind of linear experience where you're moving forward and not just treading water again and again and again. So I thought that had the potential to really transform the gaming experience. I, but besides that, I didn't see too much. I think both of those last two things that you mentioned, I, I, as, you were, as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, this is definitely taking a, a huge cue from the video game industry. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, cooperative multiplayer type games have been huge for a long time and continue to get bigger as uh, internet-enabled video games have, have just exploded. Um, and and being able to you know maintain some kind of a state that you can save with that will follow you whether it's you know inter inner property uh, if the game manufacturer can handle that or in, intra property based maybe based on the slot club or something like that i mean I, I think those those kinds of innovations um are to me are interesting as not a big slot player myself i still think that those kinds of technology innovations are are pretty interesting in in that whole device market yeah, you know, because I really see there being, especially, and I can talk about this because there's a lot of discussion about this, you know, the possibility of online gaming, you kind of have that convergence of online gaming and gaming in person. And, you know, you could really see where if somebody was kind of playing a certain title, moving towards a certain goal, and I don't know, I, I think that's got some potential. Uh, I'm curious about the show itself. Um were there more attendance than last year? Less? Did it seem like it was hurting? I remember going to one of the big uh, computer conventions right after 9/11, and it was literally a ghost town. Um, was it that kind of vibe? Was it people? Were, did people seem concerned and worried? Was could could you sense the state of the industry from the show itself? I would say the state is is cautious. I, I heard anecdotally that attendance was down about 10%, you know, just, uh, you know, companies sending fewer people per company. Uh, number of booths rented was was up. That may, I don't know if that includes, if that accounts for the uh, new entertainment pavilion or not. I think it was overall, so including that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, in general, you know, you've got to assume that this, the, that uh, the, some of the folks there are a little bit concerned about <laughs> what's going on. I was wondering if the uh, dire, the dire straight state of the industry was uh, permeating the uh, the attendees' at, at, in the atmosphere. Well, I, I did hear a lot of talk about how you know from the out of town uh, attendees about how how shocked they were at at uh, the dearth of people they saw on the strip. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't really a party mentality, you know, and I think a lot of the parties were canceled too, which I didn't notice because I usually don't get invited to them anyway, but I heard from people that a lot of them were canceled, um, and it seemed a lot more austere, I think, than in previous years. Yeah, that's ba that's basically what I was asking, so it's yeah, not, not a big surprise given how things have been going. No, and fewer amenities at the show itself, and... Uh... Only three rather outmoded computers in the press room, which, which I, if memory serves, was a big is a big cutback from previous years. Yeah, you know, it's funny. My gaming hall of fame exhibit this year either. So, 
it, up it, on the web and not in person. It's it's sort of funny how um, the you know obviously the national economy is bad. Um, times are you know times are not as good in Las Vegas. We have companies that are in trouble, but not you know one thing you know I guess that I would say is that you know when I talk to um, people in the business, there are problems with the with the industry because of leverage, because of the bad economy, because of the inability to get you know credit um, to build. Um, but you know if you take out like the the gaming control board numbers, if you ripped out the pay, you know the year end page from 2004 and 2008, you know yeah we're going to be down. Um, from 2007, which was a spectacularly successful year, um, which was up pretty significantly over 2006, which was up significantly over 05, and that was up significantly over 04. So if you take, if you took, you know, 2008 to 2004, it'd be a big, huge jump up. And the same thing with room rates, because room rates went up so much in 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, that you know, we've just become accustomed to significant upper single-digit to double-digit increases in gaming revenue and in room rates, the two big drivers of casino profitability. So, you know, it, 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 on the one hand, yeah, it's tough because expectations aren't being met and these huge debt loads that for, you know, for their own reasons, companies made decisions that leverage themselves. But you know, but that doesn't mean that the business is falling away. Um, and obviously, the business is deteriorating. Occupancy down, room rates down, gaming win down. But it's not down. It's not like it's dropping down to 1984 levels or 19, you know, or even 2000, you know, two levels. You know, it's dropping down to 2006 levels. Um, so it's not. It's not, you know, catastrophic. Um, the problem is that our, so many companies are ill-positioned to, to weather a downturn, a downturn that so far has lasted eight months, and that, you know, it's looking like may last 20 or 32 months or something, and these companies don't look like they're prepared to handle it. But I think that, you know, the, the hand-wringing probably is a little overblown. Um, I mean, maybe it's not if you're one of those companies like Harris or, um, or you know Sands or Station that found themselves, you know the founds the found or find themselves in, in a cash crunch, but I think you know other operators and certainly Steve Wynn and now that they've postponed Echelon, I think Boyd Gaming, you know these are, these operators um, say look we are we are still making money at our properties um, and we you know a, a test of a good operator is being able to to handle good times as well as bad. And, you know, for anybody who bets on a just never-ending continuation of a positive um, economic trend, you know, it's a fool's bet. And so I, I guess, I guess, you know, the, I, I'm a little, you know, I, I'm a little skeptical about all the, all the, you know, hand-wringing. I think times are bad. They are getting worse. People are losing their jobs, but I don't think that times are so bad that, um, you know, things are going to stay bad forever. We have we have um, Encore opening up in a month. We have um, City Center opening up in a year. And uh, not too long after that, hopefully, uh, Fontainebleau, maybe even uh, 
babies in Cosmopolitan. We have the M Resort opening up next year. Um, so for Las Vegas, you know, we have a lot of bright spots on the horizon. Um, the bad national economy notwithstanding, but I don't think everybody should be, you know, quite so uh, doom and gloom. Well, it's the, you, uh, um, I mean, what you're saying there is it, it, uh, uh, parallels something that Bill Eatington said in one of the panels, which was that that they, you know, what what we're dealing with is a percentage-wise a relatively small dip in in Las Vegas, you know, in uh, Las Vegas casino revenue, but it's the the leveraging and the uh, uh, situation in the stock market have had a had a massively magnifying effect on. Mm-hmm. That's right. And also, the shortening of the news cycle plays into it, too, and the fact that we have much better coverage now than we did um, back in 1992, you know, 91, 92. Most people wouldn't – definitely most people who came and visit would have no idea that casinos were having financial trouble. But this this industry is full of of, of Panglossian types who just – whenever things are at their best, they assume that that's the baseline. And I mean, I can go back to you know ninety five, ninety six, and reading these things where, you know, people were projecting exponential, unstopped upward growth for the for the casino industry, and I think you know, are these people on crack? I mean, at some point, the market is going to it's going to get saturated. It's going to need time to catch up. There's going to be a hiccup somewhere. It doesn't just go up and up and up and never ever plateau, or or God forbid, come down somewhat. But you know, it just it's it. Uh, you can see from all of the projects that are grinding to a halt that that there was. Uh, just that people in the executive suites just became in, insanely exuberant in terms of what they thought they could borrow and what they thought they could, you know, the, their ability to pay it back and and the number of projects they thought they could execute simultaneously. Well, you look back a few years ago when um, before when Las Vegas opened, all the big companies, um, MGM Mirage, Mandalay Resort Group. Um, what was then Park Place or Caesars Entertainment, um, they all built brand new towers at their premier properties. Bellagio added a tower. Um, Mandalay um, Bay added a tower. Um, Caesars added a tower. The Augustus Tower. Um, and, you know, they were trying to capitalize in a half-assed way on the luxury trend. So while Steve Wynn was starting to build win Las Vegas, those companies recognized that the luxury trend was was significant. They wanted to bet on it, but they didn't have the balls to bet a lot on it. They bet a tower rather than a hotel. The spectacular success of win made everybody slap their heads and say, oh my God, we got to get in on this luxury game whole hog and build a hotel. So then you have the craziness of all of this top-end supply being planned at the same time. City Center, Echelon, Cosmopolitan, Encore, Palazzo, um, and and uh, additional projects that look like they're going to be halted for quite some time. Every single one of them targeting that um, you know hard to capture, 
um, top end of the market. And and ask ask Bobby Baldwin and Jim Murren how how hard that market is, um, because they they crowed about how they owned the top end and that no one would take it from them. Um, that they had two thirds of the of the top end of the market before Win Las Vegas opened. It took a year before Win had fifty percent of the city's black back baccarat market. So that is that is extremely hard fought territory. And for companies like Boyd, for companies like for you know never operated at casino companies like Cosmopolitan um, to think, oh, we can come in here and get a significant portion of that market. That's a lot of chutzpah, you know, and and so, you know, yeah, there has been there have been some miscalculations. I think David is right. There is sort of that kind of over-optimistic view that people get when the market is high. But there have been missteps all along the way. Um, operators, when they should have been betting on the market, they didn't have the guts to do it. And then once the, once the strength of the market, the resilience of the market was proven, then they all got on board at the same time, which was probably another mistake. Um, so, you know, I, I think that some of the, many of these operators have a lot of blame. And and Wall Street has been a has been a terrible enabler of this, and especially in in terms of its, it only knows two verbs: build and consolidate. And during that that uh, that uh, uh, particularly flush period to which you were referring to, when people probably should have been building, instead you have these these consolidations, which uh, you know have. Uh, Contributed greatly to the problems that MGM and uh, Harrah's are now experiencing, mm-hmm. among other companies. You know, it's, and now we're, you know, now people are starting to talk about we'll be entering a period of deconsolidation where you might see. I think Liz Benson had a story about it a couple of days ago, where you might see either operator people who are new to the industry coming in and buying up assets, or casino companies basically converted converting themselves into management. Entities rather than ownership ones, but that it's you know that that the um, that the idea that that the, you know the biggest will just continue to engorge more and more of their smaller brethren is is economically unsupportable at this point seems to me. Indeed, I think we're going to leave it there. Uh, oh, we're not going to talk about the state of the industry panel. <laughs> Do you? Would you like to? Wow, I was I the only one there, or did he? I was not there. I wasn't there. Oh, Dave Terry, and Terry Lanny was not there. David, why, well, why don't you why don't you give us a, a brief uh, primer on the on the panel? This is something they do every year, um, which I think you had a had a had your own special name for it in the past. Oh, it's the Gary and Terry show. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, except for a little bit of except for a few quiet discussions in the press room. The name Terry Lanny was not uttered throughout G2E, which I thought was rather odd. He's just he's gone to a non-person status overnight, uh, which which I think is disgraceful, actually. Um, but the uh, it was a strange panel this year because it was based there was there was very you had four people from com- almost completely. Uh, different spheres of the gaming industry. You had Ernie Stevens representing the tribal casinos. Gary Loveman is sort of the de facto representative of all uh, uh, private sector casinos. T.J. Matthews of IGT, and then Armin Carew, who's the chairman of Olympic Entertainment, which operates casinos in the Baltics. 
And he had some interesting things to say about the rapid evolution of the industry over there, which which he feels is comparable now to Las Vegas in quality, if not in size. Um, and he also did not think that the new casino zones in Russia would be implemented uh, by July because the infrastructure is not there. Um, but there was there was very little there was very little intersection between what any of them had to say, except for there was some some fencing between Loveman and uh, Matthews because of you know of course the IGT has been the headlines for pushing out uh, or rather here's been the headlines for pushing out IGT participation games. And at one point, Loveman was, you know, well, if I had a million dollars and I had to choose between buying Harris bonds at 40 cents on the dollar or buying a new slot product with an unproven rate of return, well, that's an easy choice for me to make. <laughs> uh, that's a good Loveman impersonation. No, oh, thank you. I've been working on it for a few years. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he was – he. Um, and, but basically, I mean, of course, the the big shock was when when Loveman's face first showed up on the on the huge TV monitors there, because boy, he is a changed man. Really, uh, he he looked like he had had just to, just had the stuffing knocked out of him, um, and uh, he's you know he was talking like you know I mean he's basically had he he'd gone from. You know he's he's just done a 180, and now he's found religion and oh all of this this leveraging it's a terrible thing and a billion dollars is a lot of money after all and uh, which I think was the most uh, that and his his likening of the casino industry to to spending like drunken sailors which prompted right. a couple of people to remark it was a slur on drunken sailors hmm. uh, or or he forgot to ask people to cut him down from the yardarm. Yeah, because he because he was the chief drunken sailor. Yeah, and he's so, but he was basically you know, now he is he is repositioning himself as the high priest of of austerity and <laughs> and fiscal responsibility, which which ironically was was Harris' reputation in the casino industry pre Loveman. But I don't know. I mean, that's it's just I would I let's put it this way: if he just up and quit. Tomorrow, I would not envy whoever had to step into his shoes because, you know, the problems at that company are so advanced. And Bill Lerner of Deutsche Bank was saying that the the maintenance budget was being cut close to ninety percent uh, company wide. And and uh, but it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Loveman definitely got knocked off his donkey on the road to Damascus. That was quite a shocking metamorphosis. You know, one one, one interesting thing, um, Dave, you mentioned Loveman's background. You know, with with uh, Murren taking over for Lanny, now the big four here in Las Vegas, um, uh, with Sands, Wynn, um, MGM, and Harris, three of those companies are now helmed by um, non-gamers, really. Um, you know, Loveman, a marketing professor, um, Murren, a Wall Street trader who understands sort of the the deal making part of the business, but I, you know I, I I'm not sure if the guy uh, has uh, made bets on the floor like most of the early first and second generation guys uh, did. Um, certainly, uh, Steve Wynn is an operational guy who uh, who knows the business, um, but um, 
you know, and, and Sheldon Adelson, not a, uh, not a, uh, you know, a casino guy, um, either. So I think that, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting to me that, you know, the, the continuing transformation of who runs these companies. Um, I'm not sure it's for the best, but, uh, it is what it is. Well, Adelson's an entrepreneur. He's he's kind of a a, a one-off in in. The- oh, I'm not saying he doesn't gamble. Yeah. I'm just saying he doesn't. He's not a casino gambling type veteran. I mean, you know, there's plenty of gambling in in the marketplace, and and no, and and Sheldon gambled more than anybody um, during the you know over the last over the last ten years. So I'm not saying he doesn't have. You know the gamble in him. I'm saying that I think he's not really familiar. He's not a he's not a casino guy, and I think that affects the floor. Yeah, it, and what what it comes down to is that if Sheldon Adelson wasn't owning Las Vegas Sands, he'd be owning some other company. Um, if Gary Loveman wasn't running Harris, he'd be a management professor at Harvard. Perfectly. You know, if, Steve, if Steve Wynn wasn't running Wynn Resorts and had never kind of elevated his career to that level, I'm about 100% sure that he'd be working in the gaming industry doing something. Oh, that's right. He'd be, a, he'd be a pit boss or a casino manager or, you know. Or a designer. I mean, that, oh, he, yeah. you know, he yeah, might be like design. a Roger Thomas kind of guy. Yeah. I mean, he would be doing something in the gaming industry, and I don't think the other guys can say that. Exactly. To kind of backtrack a little bit um, with – Gary Lovin's appearance, I got the chance to have a very quick chat with Jim Murren, and the one thing I was impressed by was how completely relaxed and carefree he seemed. And if I was in his position, I would probably be a lot more nervous. But well, it just seemed to impress me as having a pretty good grasp on what he was doing. And That's uh, good for him, Jim Mirage, because they definitely yeah. need a steady hand at the wheel right now. I'm yeah, looking at a story. Steady. Yeah. I'm looking at a story that just got published from the RJ about uh, the station, and I guess – they're having to inject $500 million to reduce the debt load of the company. It doesn't say who exactly. It says the owners, so it's not sure if that's Colony or the Fertitas. But, uh, you know, I doubt more, more bad news. I doubt it's Colony, seeing as they just missed a, a loan payment on Resorts Atlantic City. So it uh, may be that the Fertitas are $500 million uh, lighter uh, in the wallet this Christmas season. So to be a Fertita child or grandchild i'd be very 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 upset <laughs> i don't know it's an interesting story this just got published i don't have a chance to read it but that's you know again another sign of uh <clears throat> some of these companies that did these uh that did these this consolidation and the amount of debt they piled on has, has hobbled them well and then with with station you have a, a tendency to build off strip properties at at with strip scale budgets and, yeah, and then they try to soak their hotel guests to recoup that twenty-five dollar <laughs> a night resort yeah, fees. That are exactly. fees. These guys should have, instead of investing five hundred million dollars back in the company, they should have just built the last casino themselves. I mean, it's almost as much as Aliente cost. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's wrap it up here. This has been um, a sort of special Tuesday episode uh, for GTE, of course. This week is Thanksgiving, so a, a happy Thanksgiving to um, you know everyone uh, in, in the audience and to uh, you three gentlemen and to Chuck, who's not with us today. Um, December should be pretty exciting. As Jeff said earlier, uh, we're going to have the opening of Encore, uh, which will be heavily covered. Uh, I'll be there um, for that, as well as there's a premiere of the new Mirage Volcano, which should be kind of fun for those that have been watching uh, Vegas for a long time. Not a major event, but uh, at least a... 
major attraction, so that'll be interesting. And then, that's you know, whatever December else. December 8th, right? December 8th, yes, New Mirage Volcano. So that should be interesting. Hunter, are you planning on doing a uh, an, an an encore opening uh, episode or whatever? You know, we Chuck Chuck and I are um, sort of tag teaming coverage uh, on the blog for the opening, and we had talked about doing um, something along those lines for for the podcast. Haven't completely uh, nailed it down, but um, I hope we can work something out. And obviously, that would depend sort of on also your guys' schedules permitting. But I would love to get as much. Um, as much as much feedback as possible. So hopefully we can work that out, and I will be in touch. In what I can what I can tell you, and I don't know if they've released it publicly, but the uh, first um, film, the first uh, video of the property um, is uh, has been promised to uh, um, Charlie Rose, um, and Wynn will be going on that show uh, in advance of the property's opening. Um, so we're not going to be getting any art of the property um, until that um, airs before opening. But uh, and I'm still wor- I'm still working out the details, but um, expect to be getting a uh, a walkthrough uh, you know before opening. So it it, it is going to be very exciting, and uh, hopefully uh, it will actually spur a little more business into town. I mean, I'm very excited. Uh, you know, we're booked for the first night. We're going to try a couple of the restaurants and. Um, you know it should be fun, and hopefully it will be uh, a good pre- a good prelude to a good year in 2009. Oh, I think there's I think there's buzz there. It's definitely not going to be the what they opened already thing that Flopso was. <laughs> right. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Flopso. Exactly. So we'll definitely be bringing all of you listeners information on exactly what our plans are for covering that um, as it gets a little bit closer. I also want to remind you that this podcast has been nominated for a Trippy Award on uh, the VegasTripping.com website. There is a long survey to fill out. You have to answer about half the questions, I think, for your vote to count. But there are some fun categories. There's also a, a best blog category in which three of your esteemed co-hosts are nominated along with some others. So um, there's a lot of fun stuff there, and I encourage you to go out and vote. And that's where we're going to wrap it up. So I'm going to go around the table and let you guys – Tell people where they can find you, and we'll start with you, Mr. Jeff Simpson. Where can people track you down? InBusinessLasVegas.com, and uh, I'm going to go uh, ingest some peyote before I go to the trippies. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Dave Schwartz, how about you? I'm at the soon-to-be-revamped gaming.unlv.edu, and as always, dieiscast.com. Nice. And Mr. David McKee, where can people track you down? Uh, LasVegasAdvisor.com, and my G2E coverage will also be in Casino Enterprise Management Magazine. Excellent. Uh, I'm uh, at RateVegas.com, and our esteemed friend, Mr. Chuck Monster, who's not with us, is at Uh VegasTripping.com. So we'll have him back on the next show, and to all y'all out there, have a happy Thanksgiving, and that goes to you guys as well. Have a good one. 